Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Doubleree Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Doubleree Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. We are on the cusp of our winter break being over. What have you been up to during this off period? What's been on the docket for you? On the docket has been lots of scales, lots of freed making, and lots of dog time. I have been going to a dog park by the apartment like almost every day, and we met this my my dog is a half border collie probably and we met a border collie named Ryder and we've been playing with Ryder like twice a day every day and it's been the most fun exciting beautiful experience and Ryder's mom is really cool so we've been like we made a friend Luda and I made friends at the dog park well that's interesting because Chris and I have been rewatching the Jersey Shore from the beginning and it has been the most <laughs> exciting fun invigorating experience for us. So <laughs> I feel like we've had the same experience this break. The that's same. so wonderful. You know everyone charges their batteries in different ways. <laughs> Get it, girl. I'm so <laughs> proud of you and Chris. It takes a lot of effort to make new friends, you know? <laughs> Listen, I've also been spending a lot of time with my friend Google, um, keeping tabs <laughs> on this uh, Harry and Megan Megxit situation. Yeah. Which, um, I'm firmly in support. I'm so sorry to any of the monarchists who might be listening, but full support of boundaries. I have too many thoughts for her, <laughs> us to stay on task. <laughs> with this podcast. It would turn into a Megxit podcast. But so I've been, um, well, it sounds like I've been dinking off, but I've been getting other stuff done too. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing nearly as You know what? It is your personal right to spend your days watching Jersey Shore and Googling Megxit. A break is a break. I'm on break. (laughs) But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about musical collaborations. And I want to know what your highlight collaborations have been so far, because it can be really, really special to, you know, have those nonverbal musical experiences with other people, you know, other people that you can meet at dog parks. (laughs) Real people? People not in the screen? No. (laughs) Yeah. Upon reflection, I think my favorite collaborations are actually those where you just laugh. Like I think about Mm. the collaborative experiences that I've had that I love so much. And the rehearsals are just 
oh my god jovial and jokey and it, it's not so much so that you're off task or like not getting the good work done but there's so much joy in the work that you're doing and mm-hmm. when you're gelling personally as well as musically i guess is what i'm saying and our trio driftless winds is one of mm. my favorite instances of that i mean we stopped working together and kept playing together for like three or four years after (laughs) just because we wanted to (laughs) hang out and laugh oh that was so much fun that whole year was so much fun the car rides were hilarious (laughs) do you remember when we were working on uh was it the ebear what was the one with the cuckoo the the meal (laughs) moment is supposed to be cuckoo cuckoo and then our our dear friend Corey, who played clarinet in the trio just all of a sudden out of the blue played it like two octaves too low and really heavy my mind cuckoo (laughs) (laughs) we're just laughing out this like fat cuckoo bird it's like ruined the party Uh, and then when we play, when we performed, um, crankshaft, crankshaft, that's what I was considering talking about for the first time. (laughs) And it was so exciting. And the audience was like, yes. And then at the end, there's a stomp, but I (laughs) had forgotten about the stomp and I wore these really soft, soft soled shoes. (laughs) You're like stomping with ballet flats. (laughs) Corey was like, great shoe choice. And I was like, Oh no. (laughs) Oh, that was a dream. Cause that piece was, it was really hard and it was brand new to us. And so we had this like before the performance leading up to it, a series of like really intense rehearsals of just like putting it together. And yeah, then it was like one of those things where like you do a ton of hard work, the performance a thousand percent pays off and the audience is like right there with you. I remember laying in bed that night afterwards, just kind of on this performance high, like I can't fall asleep. I'm excited about how that went. Yeah. I love that. Oh, I love that. That whole year was so special. (laughs) Do you also remember that year? I asked you to play the Poulenc Trio on my faculty recital and it went really great. And I remember even thinking, which this is a death sentence, but like, oh, this is going great. Maybe we could like put it online or use this recording (gasps) for something. And the second movement, and it was going so beautifully. (laughs) And then the oboe has, I don't know the oboe part as well as the boosting part, obviously, but it was like some run up to a long high line and you got water in your key. And it was like, I was like, I forgot about that. (laughs) Oh, totally climactic, transparent moment. I was just like, oh. So embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I had, so that Driftless Wins is definitely like on the top of my list. And I also wanted to mention the first like real kind of professional quintet experience I had, which was when I was at Florida State, um, it was... The year that I graduated, we put together this wind quintet and my wife played horn and it was Carly Gomez on bassoon and Sarah Jane on flute and Sam Poliska on clarinet. And our personalities got along super well and we rehearsed together all the time. Um, And it was during a really rough year for me personally, because it was uh, it was, I wasn't in school, so I was working as a cashier. And so that was it. That's all I had. So I was able to pour everything into this quintet. And we ended up going to Costa Rica and playing on this concert series. And it was so formative. And I've kept that feeling about chamber music ever since, you know, that just like, yes, I need to do this chamber music feeling. So I just had to shout out CQ. Do you know what other collaborative experiences I love is when you're just gelling with your collaborative pianist? Yes. I've been fortunate enough to have had like two or three collaborative pianists that I have longstanding relationships with that you just get together and 
you know each other and you know where each other is going and you take chances with each other. And my collaborative pianist that I play with now, Yuko Kato at SAU Carbondale, she and I are like that. And I have so much fun playing with her and this recital experience, but we're treating it like chamber music, which is, I think, how it should be done, but you don't always have the experience of like just the perfect musical melding of getting to know somebody Mm -hmm. and like playing with a pianist that is super collaborative is one of my all-time favorite experiences. Yeah. I have had that experience with my colleague, Michael Bunchman, who has his a doctorate in collaborative piano. And we end up playing a game like in terms of taking musical risks with phrases. And if if I lose him, then I win. But if he loses me, then he wins. <laughs> it's just the most fun because you develop this trust and it just feels so special when you have like just another soul that you can play music like that with. Definitely. So we asked our listeners about their favorite collaborative experiences. And we have a submission from Jackie. Uh, great name, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, and she says, I was able to collaborate with musicians from the Royal Australian Navy Band and the Japanese Maritime Defense Force. We had a quintet of two Japanese players, horn and clarinet, Aussie, bassoon, and American, oboe and flute. We were playing in the Republic of Marshall Islands on different atolls throughout the Republic, spreading love and music for Pacific Partnership 2019. I was so lucky to collaborate with such talented musicians from different countries and made friends for a lifetime. We would often play for an audience that didn't speak our language, so we communicated through bomb quintet music. Mm, That's so cool. That would be a really interesting rehearsal experience, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, I mean, it sounds like it was super positive and exciting, and uh, I'm jealous. I wish it was me. If you ever need a bassoonist, call me. (laughs) So Evan wrote in and said, I played one of my favorite pieces, Pulak Trio, with one of my best friends for some of my closest friends and family at my recital. And it was a total change in the way I saw music. I played much more technically showy stuff on that program. And I played much more, quote, beautiful music. But everyone said their favorite was the Pulak. It really inspired me to play every single piece like I'm playing it with my best friends and for my best friends. If the love and the intention is there, the audience can always tell. Oh my God. Evan. I know. Evan. I know. I'm not even <laughs> Who long? I know. It was bringing so people together, bringing oboe friends and bassoon friends together. I hope you didn't have water in your key. <laughs> <laughs> Edmund Nielsen Woodwinds has been serving the Double Reed community for 70 years. Nielsen sells a wide variety of oboe, oboe de mor, English horn, bassoon, and contrabassoon reeds and cane, as well as reed-making accessories, reed cases, and lefrex. And of course, they have the classic Nielsen wedge knife, which features a double hollow ground with a choice of handle size. In addition, they have many other knives available. Nielsen has long been known for their large heckle bassoon vocal inventory. Fill out their online trial form to start a trial and find the perfect heckle vocal for you. For all your double reed accessories, Nielsen is ready to help you. Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young and growing oboists. They strive to provide the necessary tools to help each student succeed. They believe in setting students up for success, which is why they rent and sell oboes with full conservatory systems. Christy Selkeen, who owns Ugly Duckling Oboes, teaches students locally as well as globally via Skype, 
and most recently offers audition coaching via Skype for high school juniors and seniors. She makes reads for her students and rents and sells student oboes. We know how important it is to have a working oboe with all of the keys on it for your developing young oboist, and this is such a perfect way to get access to that really important resource, a good read, a good oboe, and a good teacher. Check out Ugly Duckling oboes.com for all of your oboe needs. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish, Teresa Delaplane, teaching assistant professor of oboe at the University of Arkansas. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. We always love to start by getting to know our guests by finding out how they came to play their instrument. So how did you get started on the oboe? Well, um, before I start that, uh, I want to take a moment to thank you guys for having this show uh, and also for giving us in the Double Read community an opportunity to learn about each other. I've really enjoyed learning about other oboists, and I also want to thank you for asking me to be interviewed, and I'm very humbled by it. Well, we're so so happy that you agreed to join us. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you about my journey. <laughs> I started lessons when I was 14 uh, with Donald Nitz, and he taught me at the university in my hometown of River Falls, Wisconsin. And so he just regularly had me do a scale, an etude, and a solo every week. And then starting in ninth grade, I started learning to make reeds. We lived near the Twin Cities, and so I played in a youth orchestra there, and I went to concerts of the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, where I first heard Dick Kilmer play. And then when I went to college, I went to McAllister College in St. Paul for two years. And while I was there, I studied with Rachel Brignoy Green. She was principal oboist of the Minnesota Opera Company. And in lessons with her, we worked on slow practicing and connecting intervals. And when she was on leave, my teacher was Dick Kilmer. And he helped me a lot with read making and fundamentals and phrasing. And what really amazed me about him was just his unbridled enthusiasm for playing and teaching. And he was a very energetic and encouraging teacher. And then when I was a junior, I transferred to the University of Michigan, which I think was a great decision because there were so many incredible oboists in the studio. And I needed that. It was really helpful for me to hear so many good players my own age. Uh, I was in the studio with Nancy Ambrose King and Cynthia Colito and Stephen Kaplan and just many other wonderful players that I learned a lot from. And my teacher there was Arno Mariotti, and he had been principal oboe of the Pittsburgh Symphony and then the Detroit Symphony. He was a Tabuto student, and he was a great teacher as well as a great storyteller. Then for my master's, I went to Bowling Green, where I studied with John Bentley, who led me through a lot of solo repertoire. And then I did my doctorate at the Cincinnati Conservatory, where my teacher was Sally Bloom. So I actually studied with her longer than anyone else because of transferring in my undergraduate days. So I would say she was the teacher who really had the greatest influence on my development. She emphasized Alexander-type techniques of using the body in the best possible way. And her method of just physically analyzing how things worked really worked for me. What was my neck doing? What was happening with my soft palate? Are my arms relaxed? Is my mouth forward enough? And she was just relentless in making sure all of the physical processes needed to produce the best possible sound were all working. I rarely got past the first page of anything in a lesson. (laughs) If you had one bad interval connection, she would stop and fix it. So I spent a lot of my practice time that first year figuring out how to get rid of tension. Um, She was also a master of phrase structure and training us to recognize phrases and convey them well. And we also spent a lot of time on read making. So I got to be a much more consistent read maker. And another big influence in Cincinnati was just the amazing fellow students there. Uh, Some of those people were Lisa Kazenko, Bill Wilgus, Bo Newsom, Cheryl Weffler, 
Bill Parrish, Susan Eichheit, people that are still my friends uh, and colleagues and people I go to with questions and people I collaborate with. Cincinnati was the first school that I had been to where we had a weekly studio class and it was a two hour class and we covered many topics, but we also really created a community with each other and just learned to, we got to play for each other a lot and listen to each other critically. We sometimes had master classes with Robert Bloom and I just turned, learned a ton from the other students and formed a lifelong community with them. I would love to, first of all, I, we're going to go into what happened after that, of course, but I have so many questions about uh, how you started studying oboe, slow practice, intervals, smoothness, and then how that connected to your work with Sally Bloom. Could you, could you dive more into that? Like the ideas that, like how those related to each other? I think you asked about how I started playing the oboe. I started actually on violin in elementary school. And then I played in our elementary school orchestra, which was all strings until in sixth grade, an oboist joined our orchestra. And it was my best friend's little sister. And it was the first time I had heard an oboe. And I just loved it. And so naturally, when I went to seventh grade and joined band, I started on the trombone. And that was that was really only because my older sister had played the trombone and we had one sitting around the house. And that really only lasted for three or four months. And then I hated it and asked the band director if I could switch to the oboe because I had discovered that the school owned an oboe. And that band director gave every kid in band a 20 minute lesson every week. So he was my first teacher and he was actually the first person that helped me learn how to use my air and connect intervals. Um, and I, so getting back to your question about how that related to Sally Bloom, just the connection of intervals has, it's so complex with what you're doing with your air and your read and your embouchure that it's, it's just sophisticated and just takes a long time. It took a long time for me to develop. I was uh, just really incredible to have a lot of people who encouraged me along the way. Could you dive more into the specifics of how you practiced the connection between the intervals and the slow practice? And maybe if you were, or another way to look at it is if, because I'm sure that you teach that now, how do you encourage your students to look at it? I do try to teach that, and I, of course, I try to model it, and uh, I think it's one of the most important things that we do, because if you're making a long phrase, every interval connection is part of it, and so it, in my own slow practice and in the practice that I'm encouraging others to do, the first thing I do is I just do some slow notes, and this is the first thing I do when I take out the oboe first just half steps and then maybe some other larger intervals mm. and just thinking about my air and about my embouchure about keeping things relaxed uh all the things I talked about with Sally Bloom mm -hmm. and and just trying to constantly analyze my own body and of course listening to what's coming out with the intervals so what happened after grad school where did you go from there well, I went to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I'm on the music faculty now at the University of Arkansas, where I teach oboe and music theory, and I play in the lyric quintet as part of my job, and I'm actually now in my 30th year of teaching at the university, and I also play principal oboe in three regional orchestras here. I know that the Lyric Quintet is very active and very collaborative and uh, does a lot of traveling and projects. And so I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your work with Lyric and maybe what you get out of that as a musician and your guys' artistic perspective. Uh, that's a really cool part of your artistic life. So I'd love to hear more about it. Okay. Well, I have been in this quintet since I started teaching at the University of Arkansas. So 
it's been a huge part of my development and my creativity. And of course it's had its challenges and it's had some different uh, members, you know, coming in and out here and there. And it, it, I can't overemphasize how much it has impacted my own development. And playing in a chamber ensemble just allows you to listen and learn from people in a way that you just, just don't do in any other musical setting. It's also allowed me to travel and to learn new repertoire and to meet people all over the world. And it's just been an amazing part of what I do. And I, I am really loving it. What are some of your favorite past projects that you've had with Lyric? My favorite project is the album that we made a couple of years ago, and it's called Arrivals and Departures, Music of the Americas. So it takes music from Canada, uh, the United States, Mexico, Argentina, and uh, two of the works were commissioned. And so... It was really exciting to work with the composers on the commissioned works. Uh, one, one was by Miguel del Aguila and the other one's by Robert Mueller. And just the process of learning the music and doing the recording and then editing the recording and, uh, you know, finally getting to listen to the finished product was incredible. Yeah, that's so interesting to commission a piece as a group of five and to work on a recording project as a group of five. Yes. I'd love to hear about your um, kind of commissioning process and, and how that works with a group so big. I mean, five is not big, but in terms of making decisions and, you know, I think about my recording experience and even just with piano, there can be a take that you love, but your collaborator is like, that wasn't good for me. And so I, I would just love to hear about the collaborative experience of those unique projects as a group of five. Well, when we did the commissioning, we just, uh, we, we met and had just threw out some ideas about who we could commission. And then we talked about the different composers and we settled on uh, the two that we did. And we had to find money. That was the hard part. And then with the editing and, you know, saying, oh, I like this take, you know, because I sound the best in this take. <laughs> and... <laughs> Classic oboist response. Yes. I don't like my tone in that other tape. (laughs) Uh, That was was also a group effort. And what we ended up doing was we we listened to all of it as a group in the first editing. And then in the second editing, we just each took a piece and we went through and made the suggestions. And then those were those takes were put together and then we all listened again. And then uh, Leah Uribe and I actually flew up to Buffalo for three days to do the final editing in the studio up there. What was that process like? It was very intense. It was completely exhausting. Uh, Your ears just get so tired after eight hours of listening to yourself and choosing. And I I remember on uh, the second day that we were there, it was like six o'clock in the evening. And we had, we still had one piece to go. And we had the possibility of doing some of it the next morning. And Leah really wanted to just be done. She was shot. (laughs) And I was shot. But I also just thought we should just finish this now. And, and so I talked her into it. and, And we did, we just I think it was like a 10 hour day, Mm. but then we were happy the next morning we woke up and went to Niagara Falls and it was great. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds so much fun. Yeah. (laughs) I love being in nature and it's, it's really the way I renew myself is walking or hiking or just Mm. being in nature. So not only as a quintet have you recorded, but you've also recorded as a soloist. I'd love to hear about your solo recording project. Okay. Well, I just, just this fall, just a couple, a couple months ago, released 
um, an album and it's called Souvenirs. And what I wanted to do was just take several different pieces from each one from a different country. And it was an amazing project because I learned so much from it. I, I did some practice runs at the recording and my colleague Tomoko Kashiwagi is just, she's the pianist on the album. It's just amazing, wonderful to work with. And, and then the recording artist and the editor was Richard Price, who was just incredible. He came to Fayetteville and we recorded everything on a weekend which was really intense. Um, but I would love to talk about the music on this album. Uh, one of the pieces is by a um, Polish early 20th century composer, Grzyna Basevich. And this is kind of a hidden gem of the oboe, I think. Mm. It's a sonata for oboe. And she wrote a sonatina that I think is more well-known, but I really fell in love with this sonata. Uh, so that's on there. And... Of course, I have to talk about Robert Mueller's music. Bob is my husband. He's written a lot of works for oboe, and I love everything he writes because his music is so expressive. It's so harmonically interesting. And so one of his works is on this album, and it's called Commemoration in Honor of Fallen Heroes. And it was written around the time of the fifth anniversary of 9-11. And it has movements, one's called Elegy and the other is called Spirals, and they both refer to 9-11. And then another piece that's on the recording, which is actually one of my favorite solo pieces, is the Edmund Rubra Sonata, which I actually I didn't know. I love that piece. Oh, it's an incredible piece. Ugh. And I didn't know it until just a few years ago. I don't know how that happened, but anyway, it... Uh, it was it was really great to work on, and um, my pianist had actually she's a she got a degree in collaborative piano, and she had actually written her dissertation on that piece, so it was just great to work on it with her. And then I also have a very obscure Russian piece by uh, Marab Pertskalads, and it was in a collection of Russian oboe music that my father brought me back from one of his trips to Russia. It's a it's a dance and that's kind of a, a Russian dance that changes from a, a six eight feel to a three four feel, and uh, and then another piece called Melody, beautiful Melody. Seems like there's one more piece. Oh yes, the uh, Pedro Soler souvenir uh, souvenir de Madrid, hmm. which is kind of a a little bit cheesy, uh, but also expressive Spanish piece. Well, in this family, we love cheese. So. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and my album's gotten some good reviews, so I'm I'm happy about that too, and relieved, of course. If you don't mind, I'd love to switch tracks and okay. dive into your pedagogy. And my question is, if you could have one or two ideas that your students leave you with, what are they? If they could only retain one or two things, what are the most important things to you um, in your oboe pedagogy? Well, this is not specifically related to oboe, but just to life and to how you approach learning. And that is to just go for it and do things with gusto and put your heart into it. Work hard, seek opportunities, be open to new ideas, and and just have enthusiasm for what you're doing. Um, I do see a lot of students that uh, they just already seem jaded. They're 18 mm -hmm. years old, and yeah. it's just so sad. I like to find different quotes to <laughs> inspire myself as well as you know my students. Mm -hmm. So there's this great quote by Maya Angelou. It says, each of us has that right, that possibility to invent ourselves daily. If a person does not invent herself, she will be invented. So to be bodacious enough to invent ourselves is wise. So for students, it's about deciding who you want to be and then working to be who you want to be. And not just letting the wind blow you around. 
but taking charge. That's a really hard concept. Yes, yes. I find that uh, my students also have trouble with that, or at least not even just my students, but a lot of undergraduates are really stressed out. <laughs> they are. That, that's very true. And their stresses are real. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I feel sympathetic. Um, and some of them have this imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. But I, I believe self-doubt is self-defeating and even self-fulfilling. And I do know people that struggle mm. with this, but really it takes a lot of courage to be an artist mm -hmm. and to be a musical artist. You're constantly wearing your heart on your sleeve for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's very courageous to even attempt a career in music. I love that idea. So in your day-to-day, -day, you have a lot of things to balance. You have a full-time teaching schedule and are active in performing, making reads, all of that type of thing. How do you approach work-life balance and all of the things that you have on your plate? Oh, Jackie, I am still <laughs> trying to figure that out. <laughs> and actually, I think pretty much everyone is. I think any kind of artist experiences their art in every aspect of their life. So it's hard to separate it. Mm -hmm. I find myself constantly thinking about so-called work stuff at times when I'm not at work or doing work. Uh, but I do try to take time to read or go to movies or spend time with my family or cook and to do other things. But uh, I think finding that balance is just a daily challenge. What is your approach to read making like? Do you have a schedule that you stick to or are there any really big concepts that you stand by no matter what? So I think the oboe read is really just a marvel of engineering. It, it's amazing that the thing even works ever. Um, That's true. But, you know, people have figured out over hundreds of years how to engineer it and um, so what I try to do is I like to use cane that's relatively dense. I like something that has a good opening that will hold itself open. I like to try new things, but only one thing at a time. I do spend time on read making almost every day, sometimes a few hours in a day. And I usually have reads in my case in all stages of life. Uh, of course, including those past their prime, which ought to go to the retirement home. And I try not to get attached to any one read because its life is so short. Uh, I try to make my own read making methodical and not rushed and just be making a lot of reads and having a lot of reads in different stages, keeping different kinds of cane around, keeping my knife sharp. That's a hard thing for me because I, when I'm working on reads, I just hate stopping to sharpen my knife. So it takes a lot of discipline. But if you don't keep your knife sharp, you're just wasting time. As I mentioned earlier, I got a lot of um, in really great information from Sally Bloom about read making. And really one of the best pieces of advice that she gave me was to spend a lot of money on cane and to have lots of cane from different sources at all the time, all times. Before that, you know, I was a student, so I never had much money, and I was just getting by on the minimum amount of cane that I thought I could afford. So I just had to reprioritize my budget. In teaching read making, I did, I wrote a read making book quite a while ago, and I've revamped it a couple of times. It's called My Kingdom for a Read. <laughs> and you like that, huh? It's classic. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh. And I really wrote the book because uh, I would I would tell students things a few times, and then I would find out that they had forgotten about it or they weren't doing it. And so I thought, I'm just going to write this book so that, you know, they'll, it'll help them remember things. And so that was what I did in the early years of my teaching. And then in the last few years, I started a readmaking YouTube channel, and it's called Something to Crow About. And I do this with my just wonderful, amazing oboe friend, Suzanne McGowan, who was also one of my early students. 
now she's a great friend and she lives in Springfield, Missouri. And so we get together and we make these episodes about read making. And I think people have found them helpful. So I'm, I'm glad that that's working out. We have a lot of fun making them. What are the things that you address in those videos? Well, the first one that we made was about the basic scrape. And so it was just a methodical, you know, you take your blank and you do this and you scrape in this way. And when I first um, had the idea to make this uh, YouTube channel, it was actually my son-in-law's idea. And it's because there was one night, it was in February, which is always my worst read-making month. And so I was just kind of scrolling through the internet, trying to see what other people were doing with their reads. And I just found that people's videos were terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you'd get to, you know, like, oh, so-and-so is doing a read-making video. And I'd be like, oh, this is so exciting. I can see what so-and-so does. And then it's so-and-so sitting at a table with a camera 10 feet away and the person scraping on a read talking about what they're doing, but you can't see what they're doing. And so it was helpful to hear what they were doing, but I just wanted to see what they were doing. So I was kind of whining about this and my son-in-law was over and he said, you should just make your own. And I went, hmm, that's an idea. (laughs) Maybe I will. (laughs) Maybe I will. So I did. (laughs) Uh, I think that was three years ago. So it's, it's been a fun project. And I think our I think our video quality is is really good, and you can see close up what's happening. Well, and as a side note for the bassoonists, I know this is an oboe channel, but you also have a great knife sharpening video, and we bassoonists are notoriously bad about knife sharpening. So I have used the <laughs> oh, something you are, to grow huh? about. Uh, <laughs> Knife sharpening videos several times. Oh, uh, so that's. I am so happy to, to hear that. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. every every well, five years when I sharpen my knives, I'll get out the video. <laughs> oh my gosh! Stop it. Okay, and and you know your reads last forever too, so it's just. Oh not yes, fair. it's really not. It's really not fair. Oh. <laughs> what? Uh, challenges have you faced in your career and how did you overcome them? (laughs) I think being an oboist and being a professor are both very challenging. Uh, The biggest challenge for me is just to continue to try to maintain my skill and then to also improve musically and stay motivated. And there's this great uh, quote from Pablo Casals who said, when he was in his 90s that he kept practicing every day because I'm beginning to notice some improvement. <laughs> and so I I am just always hoping I can not only maintain my skill, but get better. And so I try to meet this challenge by, of course, by practicing and practicing in a smart way, but also by looking for new repertoire, improving my old repertoire, scheduling performances for myself and you know, finding things that keep me musically challenged. And another challenge is in my ensembles, either quintet or orchestra or anything else, just making sure I'm ready for rehearsals and concerts and balancing my time, you know, going back to the whole work-life balance, just trying to balance my time so I'm prepared enough. It's a big responsibility and I I don't want to let my brilliant colleagues and quintet or orchestra down. What does that process of being prepared look like for you? Well, I just recently uh, got out a calendar and wrote down what I'm going to practice on pretty much every day for the next two months because I was feeling a little overwhelmed about everything coming up. So it's just uh, like every evening figuring out on the next day when I'm going to practice and what I'm going to practice. Have you found it challenging to maintain a consistent practice schedule? And how do you get yourself to be consistent when your regular schedule is so demanding? It is absolutely difficult to maintain a 
a regular schedule, like where you might have it at the same time every day. And I try really hard to have a couple hours every day set aside. And like I said a second ago, I just try to figure it out the day before. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the next day and go, okay, this time slot has to be devoted to practice. I can't go do anything else during that time. Well, it sounds like there's a sense of that time is limited and you have things that you have to accomplish. Yes, I, I do feel like that. I always feel like there's never enough time to do everything I would like to do. And I try to, once I do my warm up, I do, uh, like I said earlier, I do some, some long tones. I do this little exercise I call Morse code to get my tongue moving and to make sure my air is moving. And then I do some scales and then I try to just only practice things I really need to work on. And I might at the end of my practice session, let myself play something fun that I already know how to play. Mm -hmm. I, I have found that I don't practice as well in the evening. And sometimes of course, that's the only time there is, but I have tried in the last few years, especially to keep the practice time in the morning or afternoon because I, I'm just more productive. Mm-hmm. So also as a university professor, you have studio class and you mentioned how impactful being in studio class was to you in your student days. So I'd love to hear some of the, um, creative things you've done in your studio class and maybe just your general approach to how you tackle that? Well, um, I'm not sure if I'm being very creative, but uh, I'm trying to keep it interesting. And we mostly use it for students to perform for each other because I feel like that's just really a way to help students overcome performance anxiety is to perform as much as possible. Uh, And also, I think it's really helpful for them to learn how to evaluate each other in a way where they're not just saying every time you could use more dynamics. And so we do talk about what are the elements that you're listening for, and we're trying to develop listening skills also. And sometimes we use the time to address special topics, like I was talking about the Morse code exercise and, you know, just getting everyone to know how to do that or to know how to do some other thing. We meet every week. And then uh, I have it set up where the students have read-making pods every week. So they meet in small groups of two or three, and they meet with the graduate assistant. So I do read-making with them in the lessons as needed, and then they have this, at least this group time that's set aside where they can learn from each other. I also um, try to bring in at least one guest every year we use our studio time before they come to try to get ready for that. What is your favorite memory of a past performance? That is really hard to answer. <laughs> it's not <laughs> a fair question. <laughs> I know. It's, I, I was thinking about this question a lot, and I just can't come up with one particular performance. Because uh, there have been a lot of performances that I've just, really enjoyed. And I think mostly it's because of the amazing people that I get to play with. People in my quintet, my colleagues at the music department, uh, the orchestras that I play in. It's all about personal connections. Yeah, I just can't hone in on any one particular performance. That's fair. Is there a memory of an embarrassing past performance you would be willing to share with us? There are many I'm sure, embarrassing moments in performances. I think I blocked a lot of them out. (laughs) So I I actually had to really think about this question. Okay, well, as I said, I think there are probably many embarrassing moments. Most of them probably involve squawking reeds or cracking reeds or wardrobe fails or music falling off the stand at a critical moment. And... Uh, I think I try to block those out. And I I did have one sort of music fail a couple of years ago. I I had a concert one night where I was going to play three pieces on this recital. And, and I had hurt my foot badly earlier in the day. And 
so on on at the performance I kind of hobbled out on stage to do my pieces and then we got to the last piece and I realized that my music was still in my office which was way across the building and I just thought there's no way I'm gonna hobble down there and get this music and keep the whole audience waiting and I remembered that I had taken a picture of this music so it was on my phone so I hobbled backstage and got my phone and then read my music off my phone (laughs) (laughs) and it it turned out okay I I got most most of the notes oh man (laughs) I do have another weird embarrassing moment this was with my quintet we were playing an outdoor concert and it, this was toward the end, thankfully, but I took a breath and I inhaled a bug, which oh. just resulted, I had this terrible coughing fit and I just literally couldn't play after that. Oh, so, voila. It was bad. We had to end the concert early. <laughs> thankfully, we had played most of the concert, so. Oh man, those outdoor concerts, you never know. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Yeah, I had a friend of mine tell me about someone who inhaled a bee when they took a breath. Oh, no. Yeah, the person had to go to the hospital. Oh, no. Like they inhaled it all the way down into their throat? I think so. And I think oh, their, no. their throat was swelling up and they could, so they couldn't breathe. Oh, God, that's so horrible. It, it was much worse than my bug inhalation. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Um. What advice do you have for a young musician who would like to have a career like yours? Well, like I said, uh, I think earlier, I, I just think people should go for it. If, if you want to do something, just decide what you want to do and just throw your whole heart into it. And I, I really feel extremely fortunate to be having the career that I'm having. I get to do a nice variety of things, teaching. I have uh, some orchestras I play in. I get to play chamber music and make recordings and videos and uh, just get to collaborate with brilliant people from all over the world. I get to travel. It's really incredible and fun and I wish that everyone could get as much gratification in their careers as I've been able to have. Uh, But you don't get there without hard work and without just really wanting it. Teresa, thank you so much for talking with us on Double Read Dish. It's been such a joy and we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us and our listeners. Uh, I appreciate you so much taking time to interview me and I just want to thank you again for everything you're doing for the Double Read community. Thank Thank you you so much. hope you loved that interview and you can always find us on our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, please email us if you want to chat at doublereaddish at gmail.com and you can listen at Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. I think I got them all. Jackie, what's next on the docket? Well, we have a couple of interviews on the pike. We haven't decided what route we're going to go. So the listeners better follow us on social media so they can watch for the announcement of our mystery guest for February 1st. (laughs) (laughs) Jackie, it's definitely time to end this nerd parade. (laughs) Go make greets. (laughs) 